how can the uh, institution of slavery, which has not existed in the U.S. for the last 158 years, be a relevant topic of discussion on a Sunday morning in 2023? Uh, maybe I should just skip the text altogether. Yeah, let's just all go home. No, let's, we won't do that. Um, uh, let, let me take a stab at this. I'll give you two quick reasons that are kind of relevant where it would, would come up maybe in conversation. First of all, you will hear people say, and this is kind of an apologetics argument then for us in response, they will say things like, well, the Bible condones slavery, so why should I listen to the Bible? Why should I believe anything that's in there? And kind of a corollary to that argument, how many have heard this argument? Well, you know, you Christians, you, you say the Bible says that gay marriage and homosexuality is wrong and this kind of thing. But, you know, you changed your view of slavery, so maybe we can change our view of that as well. Do, now, does that pique your interest a little bit? Like Maybe you'd want to have an answer for that. Um, okay, first, before we dive into the text proper, I want to give you a, a quick preface, an overview about slavery, if you'll indulge me. I think that'll help. Um, yeah, slavery has existed for a long time. Probably knew that. In fact, we can go all the way back to the earliest human writing. We can go all the way back to ancient Sumer and uh, the writings of the Sumerians, and you'll find that they have laws and information and data and whatnot that they recorded and collected, and there you can see slavery was already part of society even then, so it, pre, it predates uh, the written language, as it were. Slavery still exists today does not exist in the United States, except perhaps in places where it's being done, um, you know, under the cover of darkness. But in sub-Saharan Africa, it's estimated, and they say this is actually a low-ball estimate, they say that there are 700,000 slaves in sub-Saharan Africa today. Africans owning Africans. Interestingly enough, and this is kind of part of the apologetic that I can sprinkle in as we go along, it was Christian European nations which first outlawed slavery in the world. I think you probably knew that. You say, well, what took the United States so long? Here's an interesting factor. If the northern states were regarded as a country unto itself, did you know that that would have been the first nation in the world to have outlawed slavery? Like all of the northern states had abolished slavery by the year 1804, the year 1804. But let's talk about slavery in, in, in the biblical times, in Old Testament times, in New Testament times. Yes, God did allow Israel to practice a type, and I emphasize that word, a type of slavery. And the type of slavery was not like this, the slavery. We'll kind of uncover why and unpack why that is different, but uh, yes, they did practice a form of slavery. A person could become a slave through three main routes, at least as I've been able to go back and look and, and define it. Uh, you could be made a slave if you were taken in battle. So when the Israelites were fighting other nations under certain circumstances, they could take some of those people that they captured in battle as slaves. People who got into debt... And boy, this stayed with us all the way up through, you know, in, into uh, the times of uh, almost modern Europe. There were still debtors' prisons and so forth. But there was a slavery for those that got into 
debt that they could not pay back. Some people were slaves voluntarily. Their lives weren't very good as it were, being very poor, and they could enslave themselves to somebody, and if that person was fair and good and kind to them, sometimes they would voluntarily, you know, they would go and they would take them to the door and they would put an awl through their ear and pierce their ear, and that was an indication that they were a slave for life, but it was voluntary. If the slave were part of God's people, they had to be set free every seven years. Now here's something really interesting. I think people miss this and you might know it. Did you know that a certain kind of slavery, which would be absolutely the type of slavery that was practiced in the U.S., did you know that that was illegal under the Old Testament law? Yeah, let, let me give this to you. Exodus 21, 16, it says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. In other words, you were not allowed to take as a slave someone who had been kidnapped for that purpose. So by that law, if, if you applied the biblical law to the kind of slavery that was practiced, not just in the U.S., I mean, throughout the Americas and Europe for a time, uh, you're talking about, first of all, uh, Africans kidnapped other Africans and took them to the coast. Um, the white slave traders came to the coast and bought those Africans. Then they took them to places like the U.S. and sold them to people who knew that that's how they you know. It's like they couldn't say, "Well, I don't really know how these uh, you know chained black people uh, ended up as slaves." They knew exactly. So by God's Old Testament law, from, from the people who started the, the kidnapping in Africa, the slave traders and the slave owners in the U.S., all of them would have been condemned under a capital crime, according to the Scripture. Let's go forward to the New Testament. Sometimes people are bothered by the fact that the New Testament did not overturn slavery. Why didn't it just come right out and say, slavery is bad, we got to get rid of it? Did Paul do us a disservice by not hitting it um, hard. Well, let's, let's understand something about the, uh, the milieu, <laughs> the, uh, the world into which Paul was traveling and writing his letters. It is estimated that 30% of the Roman population was slave. 30%. One estimate I read said that in the city of Rome, roughly 50% of the people in Rome at any given time were actually slaves. It was not exactly the type, of, it wasn't a good kind of slavery, but it wasn't exactly the kind of slavery with it that was known in the U.S. And many of the slaves were doctors and teachers and things like that. Uh, in Rome, uh, from what I understand, you could become a slave kind of similarly as with the Old Testament. If a person was captured in battle, they could certainly be enslaved. If they were a criminal, they could be turned into a slave. Many times, if they were a criminal and they became a slave, they were forced to fight in the Colosseum. You had debtor, uh, the debtor situation, again, where if you went into debt and you couldn't pay your bills, you would become the property of somebody else. And that is how that uh, worked. And there were, you know, it wasn't a good life. It wasn't a good life. Nobody's saying that, that slavery under Rome was a good thing, but it was part and parcel of the whole warp and woof of that society. In the New Testament, we see the same condemnation 
of this other form of slavery such as existed in the U.S., we see that same condemnation by Paul. He could even have the Exodus passage in mind. Look at this. This is from 1 Timothy 1.10. It's a list of particularly heinous, unrighteous, awful sins. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. Have you ever noticed that before, Christian? enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So to capture someone and force them into slavery, which would define you as an enslaver, puts you in this kind of list of just egregious sins which Paul says are contrary to sound doctrine. Our God is the God who rescued an entire people of slaves for himself out of Egyptian bondage. He brought, he redeemed them. The very notion and idea of redemption, of being purchased out of slavery, is inherent under the Old Testament idea of redemption, of God redeeming his people out of Egypt. And the very same background, that same picture, is a picture of our salvation. You know, we can look at our salvation from different angles, and one of those is redemption. The price has been Paid. Christ has purchased a people unto God by his own blood in order to be a holy people. If you say, well, why didn't Paul tell the slaves to rebel? I suppose that's because he wanted them to live. <laughs> I, I suppose he didn't go there because for him the more important thing to do at that time was to bring them the gospel. For them to be lifted up out of, the, that, uh, of that, that weary, uh, purposeless life and be brought into a relationship with Christ and have eternal life. If you want to get a glimpse into Paul's attitude about slavery, let me show this to you. It's from 1 Corinthians 7. He says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now, just stop there for a moment. And you might think, so what Paul is saying is that slaves should just stay slaves. It's not what he says. Look at, look at how it continues. He says, were you a bondservant, and that means slave, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. <laughs> That's easy for you to say, Paul. But no, you'll, you'll see where he's going. Uh, but, he says, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price to not become bondservants of men. So what is he saying there? He's saying, look, there are some of you, you're slaves. I can't do anything about it. I don't have the resources to buy you out of that. You don't have the resources. You're just stuck, but you're not stuck in the Lord. You're his free man in him. However, he's saying, if you have the money... And you can get out of that by yourself, out of it, and do that. Take, the, take that route. There's nothing saying that you have to stay a slave because that's who you were when you were called. And he's also saying to others who might become slaves probably through debt, he's saying, don't go there. Like, don't get yourself in so much debt that you put yourself in as a bondservant to someone else. Remain free where available. So, if you're having one of these conversations with the TikTok generation, you've got some ammunition here. And I would say, to, I would turn the tables on them and I would say to them, I would say, uh, after sharing some of what I've shared with them, 
I would say, how do you know slavery is unjust? Who told you that slavery is unjust? Well, it's just obvious, right? Wasn't obvious to the Romans or the Samaritan, Samarians or any of the people of Europe all up until, until the 19th century. Nobody, nobody understood it. Where did they get it from? Who were the abolitionists? They were those who looked to the word of God for the standard. On what standard, by what basis are you making this pronouncement? Your ancestors believed it was okay. You say it's wrong. How do you know your descendants won't turn around and decide that it's okay for them? By what moral base? You have none, is my point. Because you're a secularist, you don't believe in any actual morality outside of yourself. So that would be how I would respond to that. Okay, let's look at the text. Uh, can't really, I could apply it all to slavery, but seeing how we're not doing that right now, let's, let's bring it into the workplace. How many feel, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but have you ever felt like a slave at work? I got a little uh, news for you. Uh, you are. In one sense, you're kind of a bond servant. You have contractually agreed to give your labor to various causes and businesses and so forth. And for that, they will pay you. But that's just sort of a, yeah, you're kind of indentured servants in a certain way of looking at it. So going back to the idea that we're to do everything in the name of the Lord, let Christ transform your workplace. Whether you're the owner, the manager, or the worker, your concern as a Christian when it comes to the workplace is that Christ be glorified, that that workplace take on a gospel flavor. Are you in a gospel-flavored workplace where you are? You say, well, that's not entirely dependent on me, but it's partly dependent on you. So in whatever way you can influence that, Bring that into, the, into, uh, into bear. Um, first of all, workers, obey your employer. That's simple. Obey your employers. When you work for someone, be, be a good employee. Do what you're told. If it's unethical, if it's illegal, uh, if it's going to get someone hurt, no. But otherwise, you're to, I mean, do, what, do what you're told to do. Colossians 3.22, bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So are you saying that I have to do everything my boss tells me to do? Yeah, pretty much, right? You're, you're working for a wage. They have authority over you in that circumstance. You ought to do the very best work you can do. Christians should not be slackers. Amen? We shouldn't be lazy. We shouldn't be sluggards. We should be the people that are setting the bar. I mean, sometimes you have to be careful. If you're in a union environment, you might make the whole union upset with you, and then they have their ways, I'm just saying. But, you know, all things being, you don't want to be a slacker. You want to do everything for the sake of that business of which you are a part. I know that grates on us because as Americans, we just like to be independent. We are fiercely independent. We threw off a king, got rid of that whole thing, and we don't like to, to just take orders. But that's the, that's the position of one who is a worker. We submit to the one who owns the business. All right. Obey with sincerity. Obey with sincerity. In verse 22, it says, Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. 
what is eye service? Um, it's kind of self-explanatory. In fact, it's so self-explanatory that, uh, that Paul invented this word. He did. Like, it's not a Greek word you find elsewhere. Paul coined the term eye pleaser. And, you, and it just it sort of explains itself, doesn't it? You've heard the old expression, um, you, you'll, you'll never believe how much you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. This is not that. This is the opposite of that. This is, I only care if I get credit. This is the guy in the weight room who's made, you know, pressed it, the bar one time, and as the coach walks in, he goes, 24, 25, you know, because he's just, it, it's, it's not about performance, it's not about integrity, it's about um, somebody's watching, and that's what I care about. I care about getting credit, I want to be, uh, I want to be given credit for what's being seen. People pleaser, pretty much the same thing. Um, you don't care about doing the right thing as much as you care about, are people happy with me? Do people like me? There are a lot of people pleasers in the world. Do you know where you find 99% of people pleasers? This is a, exactly the pulpit. 100%. Yeah, now I made up that statistic, so uh, uh, you'll, you'll be happy about that. But, um, but there are, it, it's a temptation. Think about it. You got a job where everybody thinks you're great if the, if the pews are filled. You know, oh, well, he must be doing something really good because people just keep coming back, well, you know, week after week, and it's just more and more and more. And people go, wow, what a great success. Well, a lot of times we're tempted to say what we think people will be pleased with, to do and say and, and, and negotiate and manipulate such that everybody is happy. Here's the problem with that. Being a people pleaser is almost the exact opposite of integrity. It's almost the exact opposite of integrity. The only time people pleaser works in ministry is if what pleases people is exactly what God says in his word. But if, if everyone in, a, in your average congregation wanted exactly what was in God's word, you wouldn't need the preacher up here preaching. He has to step on toes. He has to say things that are not popular. What both eye service and people-pleasing hold in common is that they lack integrity. You're not, you're not really trying to do the best. You're not necessarily trying to do that which, you know, which is responsible. You just care about, am I going to be treated well? Am I going to be liked? Am I going to be rewarded? And so Paul clarifies. He says, but with sincerity... The worker who is working with sincerity is the worker who cares about the job no matter who is watching. Have you ever been in a work circumstance? I'll just ask you to think about this for a moment. But have you ever been challenged by, in a work situation where you know that doing the right thing will get no notice whatsoever? The boss will come back and he'll say to the team of 20 people, Good job, team. And you're probably not going to go, hey, I actually did that. Those 19 could care less, but I did. You're not going to do that, right? Have you ever done something just because it was the right thing to do? That's sincerity. That's integrity. And God calls the Christian to work in that way. And you'll see why. Obey as for the Lord, as for the Lord. 
You see, it's not only about satisfaction in your workplace. It's even more about your relationship to the Lord. We, we work knowing that the Lord knows our heart. The Lord knows whether we have integrity. Other people won't maybe see it. We could go years and just have everything just missed by, by the people. And we can watch people get elevated and promoted that didn't put in half the work that we do. But God has seen all of that. God knows our heart. He knows what's, what's there. Murray Harris writes this, The motive for a slave's wholehearted obedience service is not to be cringing servility. You understand what that means? Like just, you know, you're just a wimp and you're frightened all the time before an earthly master, but reverential fear before the heavenly Lord. Have you ever heard of quiet quitting? Yeah, um, I don't know when that, did that start with COVID? I didn't hear about it years ago, but it's been kind of a phenomenon. Uh, from my understanding, and this is, this is just me looking at it, um, you know, from a galloping horse, but I believe that quiet quitting is when you're not satisfied with your work and you're basically thinking of finding something better. But you know what? You need a paycheck and it might take you three months to maneuver. And so you, you keep showing up for work, but you're not really doing anything. In a lot of places, a lot of workplaces, it's hard to fire people. Almost any corporation, even a school corporation, John, I'm sure, is same same thing. It's like you have to have just cause. And if the person doesn't like go around, you know, uh, saying politically incorrect things or you know, tripping people as they walk past them, they can skate and coast for a long time doing no work whatsoever. They're just twiddling their phone. They just have their swing line, and they're just moving it around on their desk, and, uh, and that's all, and they can get by with that. And they do that until finally they either get fired or the job comes along that they really want, and then they jump over to it. Could a Christian quiet quit his employer? Just ask you to think about that. If you have quiet quitted before and this is hitting you, I'm sorry, but I don't think a Christian should be a quiet quitter in that sense because we're, the obligation is to work with integrity and sincerity as to the Lord, as to the Lord. There's a Latin phrase that Ligonier Ministry um, is famous for that's, that's um, um, been around for a while. It's a Latin phrase, corum deo. I think I've mentioned it from the pulpit before. Do you know what that means, corum deo? It means before the face of God. It's before the face of God. It means that you live your life with the knowledge the Christian should live his or her life knowing that it's not so much about people pleasing and getting the credit and all of these things. It's I'm living my life in reverential fear of God because God is watching. I live my life in, in that sense. Wasn't that what Paul wrote in chapter 1 where he said that if we were filled with wisdom and knowledge, we would learn to know how to live lives that please God. It's the, it's the desire to please him that ought to push us. We fear God. We don't fear God like an abused dog fears a cruel master. We fear God like a son of a loving and just father whose father in love will discipline him, right? Have you ever had that situation in your life? You had a mom or a dad, and they were just, and you loved them, and you, you, you weren't really worried that in your sleep they were going to take a shotgun and, you know, end your life or anything like that, but you did fear them. 
It's like you, you feared their displeasure. You feared discipline. We are to work for the sake of the business that we're part of, but we're to do it in fear of God. Paul strengthens this in verses 30, uh, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing um, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And here is something absolutely amazing. Remember, Paul is actually speaking to slaves. We're, we're bringing it into our context. Paul's speaking to slaves, and he says in, in, that, in that last little uh, wording there, you are serving the Lord Christ. How transformative is that thought? I'm a slave. I don't have any choice about what I'm doing. I'm just taking orders. I'm, you know, I'm not building the kingdom of God. I'm not preaching the gospel. My owner isn't having me go down and you know, build a, a cathedral or something. I'm just doing some really grunt work that seems thankless. And, and God says, you are working as for me. It elevates everything about your life, Christian. Children, like if you're here listening and you're a child, you're still under your, your, you know, the, your parents' uh, rule and, and roof, um, you may think, man, I can't wait to get older and serve the Lord. Because right now, I am just you know, spinning my wheels here at home, and I, just, I have chores that I have to do, and I have to mind my mom and dad and I got schoolwork and now I got a job at Sonic and they're telling me what to do but I can't wait for that time when I can get out and just do something for Christ you can do something for Christ by doing all of those things that we just talked about God receives that as work unto him when we do it with that heart when we come at it like I, for the sake of Christ, because I bear his name and for his glory, I'm going to do the best I can at what I've been asked to do. Whether it's for my mom or the school or for Sonic, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to give, you know, give of myself and I'm going to do it. The Lord receives it. He knows it. He receives it as done unto him and you will receive your reward. Wives, do you feel underappreciated and overworked? Husbands, do you feel overworked and underappreciated? The same principle is true. If we do what we are called to do, if we, if we fulfill our responsibilities for our family and in the workplace, the Lord receives that as done unto him. Suppose you have a really tedious, monotonous, thankless just drudgy kind of job. I don't know if drudgy is actually a word, but you get what I mean. If you want a picture of that, I just got back from L.A., and I had a chance to go to the Getty Museum. Getty Center is a very famous museum, lots of stuff out there. And there was an, ex there was an exhibition from an artist. I, don't, I think his name's pronounced Millet, M-I-L-L-E-T. You can correct me if I'm wrong later. But anyway, he had a very, this very famous uh, painting called Man with a Hoe. Man with a hoe. That's H-O-E. Um, it it, but it, it was a peasant. He was out, you know, in the French countryside, and it looked like he'd had a hard life. Like, it's just etched in his face. He's leaning on a hoe, and he's just, yeah. And, 
it was very controversial at the time because people felt like Malay was making it seem like just drudge and horror for anybody that was a peasant and people reacted against him and said he was a socialist and this, that, and the other thing. Um, one word, you should look it up. It's not right now, but like you should look it up. Man with a hoe, Malay. Um, even if your job is that, even if that's, you know, even if, you know, they say in the army, sometimes they have you go out and dig a hole in the morning and come back and fill it up in the evening and you're like, what is that all about? Right? My, my life has no purpose. In the eyes of God, everything you do, every effort you give can be given to him and can bring glory to Christ. You are a Christian. You bear the name of him who came into this world and in perfect obedience did the work of his father to perfection. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Everything you do in your life bears his name. You carry his name, Christian. And everything you do, you do quorum Deo before the face of God. And God who sees and knows your heart will reward you accordingly. One day in glory, when you share in his glory and, and you have the joy of being in his presence, grace, all of grace, yet we know that, that those things which have been done in his name will not lose the reward. Paul says your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now maybe when you read the phrase your labor in the Lord is not in vain, maybe you think, oh, that's what Pastor Jay does. Because he labors in the Lord. And I just, I just labor you know, at fuller brush or whatever the case might be. No. If, if you have offered it as unto him and done it in his name, then you will receive your reward. One more quick thought under the workers here. Obey in light of God's impartial justice. People, uh, people differ over who this is being spoken to. Is it looking back to the slave or is it looking ahead to the master? Uh, I don't know for sure. I'm going to split the baby and say both. It seems like it does apply to both. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. There is no partiality. The world isn't fair. Have, have, have any of you discovered that yet? Is this, I'm breaking news to you today. The world is not fair. And there's a lot of talk of justice today, which is an interesting thing. Um, you know, uh, what are we being told here? We're being told there is a standard of justice. We know it's not in the world. That standard of justice is God. God is the impartial judge. How does a person go on working? You know, we have this, ooh, we got, I'm... I'm Maybe I'm overselling it, but you know, oh, well, yeah, yeah, every Christian has this big chipper attitude, like, oh, I'm going to work heartily, and I just feel like everything I'm doing is for the Lord. I mean, a lot of days are hard, and you're up against a lot of injustice. You are the guy who, who works with integrity, and the 19 other slackers get the credit, you know? And, and you don't get elevated above in any way. You're just part. And, and, and sometimes you think, wow, how does that end up being fair? Well, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality with God. We, if we are treated unjustly, those who mistreat us, and this is our comfort, they will stand before God and give an account. Do you ever have to retreat to that in your workplace? Ever? 
Like you're just being treated badly. And you just have to finally say, you know what? There's, there's a judge in heaven who does right. He has my cause. He'll sort it out, right? We leave it with him. He'll sort it out. Reminds me of that story of Tolstoy's, uh, and I, th- I think I've shared it before. It's a short story called The Candle. How many either have read that or they remember me sharing it before? It's a great story. I'll, I'll try to just kind of condense it really fast because I have used it before. But uh, the story is, is during peasant times before the Bolshevik re- Revolution, and there's a group of peasants, uh, kind of like the guy with the, with the hoe, and, uh, and their lives are pretty miserable. And they have a steward that is over them. And he is unjust, he is cruel, he is wicked. He just plots how he can make their life miserable. And uh, one Easter, he, he tells them, you're going to plow the fields on Easter. Well, that would, you know, Russian Orthodox, that, oh, that's a no-no, you don't do that. And, uh, and all the workers are like, maybe we should just kill the guy. Like, let's just lie in wait and, and, and bash his skull in or something. And um, they don't do it, but they're just fomenting all this. And, and the one guy... He goes out with his plow on Easter, and he dresses in his Easter attire, and he plows, and he has a, a candle on the front of the plow. And uh, it's a beautiful story. As he goes, the candle doesn't blow out. As he goes one row after another, and he get, when anybody says something to him, he doesn't answer back except to give them the, the Easter greeting. And when the steward like starts checking on the peasants. They're like, what's so-and-so? What's Mikael saying? Or, you know, or they, you know, he starts going through all the names of the peasants like, oh, he wants to kill you. You know, oh, this guy's, you know, just, just as angry as he can be. And then he's, well, what about Pet, you know, Pet, Pet, Peter or whatever the guy's? He's like, oh, he's plowing. He has a candle on the front of his plow and, 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 he, and he's greeting everyone with an Easter greeting. And this guy, when he, when he hears this, he just like turns white and he jumps on his horse. He tells his wife, he's killed me. And he gets on his horse and he starts to ride away. And the horse rears up and he falls down and he, and he dies. Love that story. <laughs> love that justice, right? We, we love to see a little bit of justice. But, I mean, this, our God is a just God. God is not partial. And, 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 God, and, and that is our comfort. Now, if you're a Christian employer, I, I want you to take that to heart as well. Uh, bosses, treat your employees with justice. Treat your employees with justice. It says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. It's kind of interesting. There was all these different angles to what he said to the slaves. And, when it co- and some people might think, well, this seems a little lopsided. But he really only zeroes in and says one thing to the, uh, to the owners. Now, this other, the, the, how he prefaced it with the fact that there's no partiality with God, I think they're hearing that as well. And then basically Paul says, look, you're going to give an account. You want to you treat your workers the way you want that your master in heaven to treat you. The kind of fairness and justice that you expect from God, you ought to be responsible for that kind of fairness and justice when it comes to them. Now, I will, I'll say one thing really quickly. We talk a lot about justice nowadays. Social justice. That is a loaded term, isn't it? Like, I don't know what people mean when they say social justice because it can mean radically different kinds of things. Biblically, justice is not 
necessarily what people today call equity. Because equity today for many people means if we look at society and some people have less and some people have more, then there's an inequity and what we need to do is get everybody to the same level. That's not a biblical view at all. Uh, A biblical view of justice and equity and fairness and righteousness is really doing what you agree to do. It's holding to your bargain and treating people fairly. Think about the parable that Jesus told of the man who went out to get workers for his vineyard. Do you remember that one? Yeah, it's really about salvation and that people can come to the Lord at different points along the way. And it may be early and it may be late, but but the same eternal life is given to all. That's what it's about. But it's interesting because you get a view of biblical justice within the parable that Jesus is saying. You remember the story. He goes, out, he goes out in the morning, and he comes to some workers, and he's like, I need people to work in my uh, vineyard today, and are you willing to do that for this amount of money? And they go, sure. And they, So they go out, and, and they work all day long. About noon, he goes out again, and he, and he goes to some men that are still sitting there. He's like, would you want to come out and work in my vineyard for the rest of the day, and I'll pay you this amount? It, it's the same amount he offered to the others. And they go, sure, yeah, we'll do that. Contractually, they're obligated to do what they've agreed to do. He goes back later in the day. There's just, it's almost sundown. There's very little left of the day. And he hires another group of people, and he agrees to pay them the exact same amount. And you know the story. At the end of the day, they gather around to get their pay, and the people that started at the beginning of the day are expecting more. And, and Jesus explains the parable by saying that the man basically says to them, look, this money is my money, and I'm paying you what you agreed to work for. And I think that's a good view of biblical justice. If a manager or a business owner is a believer, he or she is still bearing the name of Jesus in everything that they are doing, maybe even more so. They have a lot of responsibility. If, if they're an entrepreneur, they've taken incredible risk. They have to do all kinds of things. Their, their mind has to be almost obsessed with their business 24-7. They hire people. They pay them a living wage. You know, we should be thankful for job creators. But the Christian in that position bears a greater obligation. He too lives his life corum Deo. He must see that his business is almost what we would think of as an expression of the gospel. His business is an expression of the kingdom of God. He, he has a stewardship given to him from God. And he or she must be just and fair with their employees. And that doesn't mean that they have to be the highest paid employees on the planet. They need to be paid fairly and justly and contractually according to what's been agreed. Such a one must allow the Lord to transform his or her business into a place where Christ the Master already is ruling on earth as it is in heaven. It should be a slice of heaven. We should see the justice and equity and impartiality and the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God in that business. And if God has put you in that kind of place, that what a blessing that is. You too do this as unto the Lord. Well, there is no, uh, there is no division between sacred and secular. 
That is a problem that um, has been around a long time. You see it in every church, even churches that deny it. They, they end up living it out. So many times we think, oh, you know, uh, I just hope I'm a good enough Christian that maybe I can teach at a, at a Christian college or be a pastor or be a missionary. Like that, That's the only way you can live your life for God. That's the sacred. And then you have these other lesser Christians who just have to take a job, you know, being a drywall hanger or something like that, you know, because they, they can't do anything better than that, right? Isn't that how we kind of think? We put one up on a pedestal. The, what does this passage tell you? It tells you that everything you do, you do as unto the Lord. You go into any occupation bearing his name. You are there for his glory. And you can be in ministry and break every one of these commands here. You can be a people pleaser, a slacker, uh, you know, all of those things. You can totally do that in ministry if, uh, if you're not careful and, and vice versa. If, you, if you're out there and, and you're digging a ditch, if you dig that with the heart that is sincere and you're doing that as, as unto the Lord, you will have your reward from the impartial judge of the universe. Isn't that good? That's a good thing. Okay, all of this to say it's an implication of the gospel. So if you hear this, if you're not a Christian and you think that sounds pretty good, if you want your life to really have meaning and count for eternity, what we've said can't completely apply until you've come into union with Christ. When you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, all of this actually ends up making sense. Then you have eternal life. Then all of this you know, comes unto you and, and, and from the power of Christ in you, you can live this sort of life as, as he uh, enables you. But you have, to, you have to come to him. You have to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must believe in him and be saved. And then not only will he save you, but he will begin that transformation and he will even transform your workplace. Isn't that, isn't that good? Yeah, I hope that sounds good to you today, but you must, you must come to Christ in order to experience that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that, um, that this passage, which probably in some, some people's mind is a hard passage because it deals with, with uh, the slave issue and so forth. Lord, I, I pray that you've encouraged us and expanded our thinking on this quite a bit today. But Lord, most of all, I pray that as workers or as business owners that we would see how very much our whole life belongs to you, and especially our workplace. Lord, help us not to be slackers. Help us not to be men-pleasers. Lord, allow us to work with sincerity of heart and do so as unto you, fearing you and, and trusting that you are impartial and knowing, Lord, that you have given us everything in Christ for this to, for this to be done. And uh, in his name, we're going to uh, end this service. But we do pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus today, that, uh, that they would hear the gospel and turn and believe and be saved and to see their whole life transformed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.